The human face. There's no more powerful tool in the cinematic arsenal, something wholly unique to the defining art form of the 20th century. You see it in Maria Falconetti's tears, in Orson Welles' grin, and in the blink of an eye in the great photographic time capsule, La Jetée. They are canvases upon which every fear, every passion, every possible human experience can be writ large. Faces matter, and often, specific faces matter. Faces have changed the course of film history. For proof of that assertion, look no further than the mug of Humphrey Bogart. From the moment we meet Sam Spade in a San Francisco detective's office, his was the defining face of cool. Of course, cool is a hard concept to put to words. Bogart is a series of near contradictions. Handsome but rugged, wisecracking but deathly serious, romantic but in need of no one but himself. He's ageless, deathless even, to the point where you can't imagine him young or old. But he's also painstakingly mortal, taking beating after beating, sculpting his craggy countenance, film by film, never making it past middle age. When he died in 1957, the era of classic noir died with him. Three years later, when Jean-Luc Godard fired the first feature-length shots of the French New Wave, he did so on the coattails of Bogart. Jean-Paul Balmondo stands outside the cinema, fixed on a poster of Bogey, running his thumb across his lips. Three years gone and a world away, even then, it was hard to imagine a more singular Hollywood icon. It's only more true today. Look back on cinema history when Bogart stands alone. You might say he just had one of those faces. One that dreams are made of. Yeah, well, like a man told me once, step out your door in the morning, you're already in trouble. It's just a matter of whether you mixed up at the top of that trouble or not, that's all. So you're a private detective. I didn't know they existed except in books, or else they were greasy little men snooping around hotel corridors. Yeah, well, you know, that's just like, uh, your opinion, man. Step aside like a nice fella and let us do our job. What's in it for me? Nobody got hurt. Oh, God, I'm saying I think they died quickly, though, so I don't think that they got hurt. Ladies, it's okay with me. Hello, and welcome to Celluloid Dirt, where two friends get together to watch new and familiar noir films, then talk about them. I'm one of those friends, Fred Pelzer, joined by my friend, Preston Johnson. And as you can probably tell, tonight we are on the case with Humphrey Bogart, the definitive star of classic noir and arguably all of classic Hollywood. He is enough of a giant that we've devoted an entire early episode to him, and with good reason. It's hard to picture film noir without his face coming to mind. Tonight, we're going to unpack his presence into monumental films of the genre. The Maltese Falcon, and The Big Sleep. We'll begin with the former, which debuted in 1941. Here's the trailer. Come closer. I want to talk to you. I'm going to tell you an astounding story. The story of the Maltese Falcon. 600 years, the Falcon has carried the mystery of a fabulous wealth under its grotesque wings. I could tell you a thousand tales of the men and women who have hunted this evil bird. But every story has the same ending. Murder. Listen to these incredible people, all consumed by their passionate greed for the Maltese falcon. What have you ever given me beside money? Have you ever given me any of your confidence, any of the truth? 
Haven't you tried to buy my loyalty with money and nothing else? What else is there I can buy you with? The Maltese Falcon introduces Humphrey Bogart as private detective Sam Spade, thrown into a case following the death of his partner, eventually going head-to-head with an international cable of crooks on the hunt for the titular statue. It was the first feature by legendary director John Huston, and also stars Mary Astor, Gladys George, and a rogues gallery of genre heavyweights, Peter Lorre, Sidney Greenstreet, and Alicia Cook Jr. So... Fred, this is uh, a pretty pivotal film in the history of noir and film history itself. Uh, And uh, for me, certainly in my own cinema watching experience, not just noir, but uh, but classic movies altogether. Agreed. No, this is one that is almost pre-memory for me. I just know that it was on, you know, my dad, I think we've both had the same experience of growing up in a house that were classic movies were not out of the norm. My dad was a big turn classic movies guy, AMC back when AMC showed movies. Uh, So this was definitely just something that was on and that was part of the firmament for me. And uh, I I was talking with, uh, with a friend a a week ago or so about, about classic movies and, you know, he has a young family um, and, and, you know, what he could show, what he could show to children. And, and I was thinking it through and just because this is something I watched at such an early age, revisiting it, it does play well for, um, for capturing a young viewer's interest in old movies. And maybe it's just because the, the, the characters in here are, are drawn so broad. They are Mm -hmm. such exaggerated types. And, uh, and, and because of that, they're, it, there's no real risk of losing interest in who you're watching on screen. The the actors, just by virtue of their larger-than-life personalities, uh, hold that attention all to themselves. And, and obviously, that doesn't work without an anchor quite like Humphrey Bogart at the center. For sure. I think also as a story to that end. I mean, it's very clear stakes. You know, it's that life and death, going to prison, those are easily understood and accessible the plot's a little labyrinthian, but that's sort of the point. So, you know, it's not like you're, you're going to lose a lot there. So no, I, I think that's, that's, that's spot on that you can, there's a lot you can access, but then it still has layers beneath that. So that as you return to it, as you get older, there's, there's more you can take away from it. Yeah. Uh, so uh, the, uh, some context for the film, this is uh, a, from a novel by Dashiell Hammett, one of the the key, pulp noir authors uh came out in 1930 uh the first film adaptation occurred just a year later in 1931 and then 10 long years elapsed before we came to john houston's adaptation hammett as we know also had adapted the thin man uh and or wrote the thin man in between yeah he wrote thin man after this but the movie was adapted before this version as you said after the uh the 31 version of uh Maltese Falcon, although there is also an additional one or two versions that were made. I know there was at least one more, uh, Satan Meets a Woman, I think is what it's called. And it's more of a, it's somebody, essentially somebody saw The Thin Man and went, what if we did that, but with the Maltese Falcon? And, oh, who's the female lead in that? 
it uh, i watched it's a got, little what a, bit what a title too <laughs> it's it's yeah i mean it's not as maybe it's not saved by a woman i don't know just talking to my butt I, I, as i've uh, been editing these episodes i've realized i just talk like i know stuff a lot really i don't know that much. Um, satan metal lady satan, satan metal lady there we go which that's is, which is. is also a good title uh, yeah i mean it's betty, betty davis Bet davis yeah um, uh, and warren william in sort of in the sam spade role but he's doing nick charles like he's doing right yeah so it's i watched a little bit i was kind of went oh this is this is fun kind of cute but also not Com- particularly compelling that I, I i felt like i needed to, to keep watching it or that it was going to be very informative to this conversation well and and yeah it's it almost feels like this movie is the start of the conversation um where where noir n- noir kind of crystallizes in maltese falcon through the lens of bogart's performance through all of the the hard-boiled elements coming together uh because i'm i'm at a loss for ha- for finding an example before falcon that that quite pulls everything together and is firing on all the cylinders that it is here agreed it's there's a reason that we wanted to do the private detective as our first big season and there's a reason that this is pretty much the first noir within that season you know we we teed it up with uh, nick and nor charles and with william powell in general but this is it and so what a lightning bolt right how wild is it that this is john houston's first oh outing as a as a director and he does he does um really strike gold here it's uh it 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 is not his most technically refined movie um no sure. one no one would argue that but but wow every element that's going to make something a, a classic just shows up here um john houston of course would later go on to such projects uh including some humphrey bogart uh, classics as Treasure of Sierra Madre, Key Largo, African Queen. Um, he's also got the Asphalt Jungle, Beat the Devil, and uh, and is one he of in my Chinatown. Uh, I mean, right? He's, he's in China. He's, he's going to come back on this podcast bonafides. as a director and an actor many times. Um, and I, I absolutely love. It is not noir, but I, uh, I love the Misfits quite a bit. It's a giant mess of a movie with a with a whole lot of tragedy baked into the production, but, uh, but it is a hell of a movie with some great performances in it. I actually just watched beat the devil for the first time recently. And it was fun coming back and watching this when it is so much of a getting the gang back together, but even more of just sort of a, a loose hangout movie version of the Maltese Falcon <laughs> slash, you know, uh, Adam Sandler esque, I'm just going to get me and my friends to go on a vacation someplace and the studio's going to pay for it. No one just make something up on the spot and, and have a movie. Well, I guess by, by the mid fifties, he had uh, earned the, all of them <laughs> had earned the ability to do that. So. It was, uh, cause there's also what treasure that, uh, was, it, was that it? No, African queen was the one right where he and Bogart just spent the entire time drunk. So they didn't get any dysentery because they refused to drink the water. They were just drinking the whiskey they brought with them. That sounds about right. <laughs> that sounds about right. It was one of those. It was one of the uh, on location, him and Bogart just uh, being like, "This is a great excuse to get drunk." I mean, yeah, we'll 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 be revisiting Houston's work quite a bit. Uh, Key Largo is another great one that that we'll have plenty to talk about when we get there. Yeah, I, yeah I'm, just a first I'm sure film. we could do a full uh, a full uh, review on some of the key collaborations and look uh, look at. 
uh, noir through some of the those lens and obviously uh houston and and bogart is uh is all, arguably as classic uh as as bogart and bacall so here we've got this um this movie that has the full template for the genre baked right in we open with with Mary Astor walking into Sam Spades to Humphrey Bogart's office in San Francisco, and laying out uh, uh, laying out a case for him, we have uh, Sam Spades' partner Miles Archer walking in and kind of inserting himself into the scene. Uh, we get some immediate contrasts between the two partners that are played up. Uh, before you know it, uh, Miles Archer is on the case, has been shot, and things get very complicated very fast for Humphrey Bogart, who then uh, plays his card as an opportunist and seeks to insert himself into the hunt for a uh, and, and uh, not not the original MacGuffin. I, I think I think we credit Thirty Nine Steps with that, but oh, sure. uh, but certainly um, one one of the most uh, most notable MacGuffins in all of cinema history, the Maltese Falcon itself, um, and a hunt for this fabled uh, fabled Maltese statue commences with uh, with Peter Lorre and Sidney Greenstreet vying for uh, for their own claim on the bird all those elements are definitely setting the paradigm for what these these types of stories look like but to me especially it is the femme fatale enters the private detective's office part of it that is so iconic and married to just the notion of noir and going back to our very earliest conversations about you know stripping the genre down to its basis components and and looking at what pastiche does to invoke noir and and the elements that are most commonly called upon to say we're doing a noir thing it's this it's the lady walks into the office she's spinning a tail and you know that that she's not playing it straight but you're in it anyway and bogart is so um instantly magnetic here because he doesn't buy a word that she's saying Mm -hmm. He buys it as far as the dollar is gonna is gonna get him there. He says it as much. Um, he he she and Mary Astor's got a uh, the got the trickiest role to play here because you are constantly unsure just what you can trust that she's saying, and uh, and and so that's a a tricky line to walk for anyone. Uh, it's she's she's someone who right up till near the end you've got no idea where she's going to fall and what's going to happen you know you don't trust her but you don't know exactly uh exactly uh how things have shaken out but bogart uh it's it's almost beside the point to him and i think that's partly why he's just so he's um he's so charismatic right off the bat is that he knows what he's getting himself into he's got a savviness that his that his partner completely lax um and, and then when his partner gets killed it doesn't seem to really face him <laughs> no i mean it's striking and again probably why it feels so much of a, a plate shift of a tectonic shift in terms of the noir that this main character is deeply amoral and pragmatic you know his 
business partner and supposed longtime friend gets killed and he does not seem to care. He's, he was sleeping with the guy's now a widow and doesn't care about her either. He just sort of goes, this is now a mess that I have to deal with and I don't want to deal with it. Uh, I mean, just throughout that is, that is how he played. And that is, I mean, that is Dashiell Hammett too, right? That is the hard boiled detective that he's bringing now getting brought to the screen. He, um, he is a scoundrel uh, and, uh, and, and yet, and yet you, you can't help but root for him. He, he talks sense. He, um, he's certainly the person that seems like the, the only anchor in a world of, of shifting allegiances and, Mm -hmm. um, and deception. And, uh, and, and the film goes to great lengths to position him as as the masculine paradigm, and that's what, one thing that I was really struck with when revisiting this. That you know, I I, I guess I I would have thought of this last time I watched it, which is probably ten years ago or so. But but as a as a child, I'm not thinking about uh, about oh look at how he is positioned against the the. Um, the diminutive foreigner and against the effeminate fat man and mm-hmm. against the, the against skinny kid. poor, poor <laughs> Cook Jr. who's just a, a punching bag for everyone. I mean, all of them. I mean, he, he again, going back to just how much of a rogue he is, he, he enjoys beating them, right? The, the first time that he confronts Joe Cairo and gets the upper hand on him, there's, you know, he goes to strike him and then he stops and watches Cairo flinch. And there's a smile on, on Bogart's face. And then he hits him. Like, it's not just about, you know, getting the gun or resolving this fight. It's about that, that power and that very applied sense of masculinity. It's set up through every, every point that the movie can, um, can hammer that in that, that Bogart is, um, Bo- Bogart is the masculine ideal here, and everyone else swirling around him is uh, is is more effeminate, is more foreign, is more inexperienced, is all of the above. Um, it uh, it's uh, it plays it plays a little oddly when you think about it through more modern lenses. It doesn't. It feels like that's the kind of thing that movies would very much shy away from. Um, being made today mm-hmm. well, right it would be they, the the i mean it would depend on the type of movie right i mean if you're talking about you don't think if you're talking about um s craig zoller for example as opposed to you know there's there's a but I, I totally see your point of in a more broad appealing sense i mean i think at this point marvel movies right are the paradigm of, of masculinity in, in pop culture for better or worse just in terms of broadest appeal uh let me think of what's that article the uh everybody's hot but nobody's having sex and it talks (laughs) about how you know all all these marble stars are peak beyond peak physical specimens that are many of them are probably using performing the performance enhancing drugs in order to achieve the very limits of what the human physique can do and everyone's in the movies will kind of ogle them a little bit, but for the most part, it kind of goes, all right, great. They look good in spandex. Now let's throw them, throw them at each other because nobody has any genitalia in these movies, That's as opposed true. to here where there's from the get go, he's like we said, sleeping with his partner's wife and then is 
interested i mean the even his secretary brings in uh brings her in and goes you're gonna want to talk to her you know like from the get-go it is about a very i don't even want to say dated because it is definitely so prevalent in parts of society but uh, an idea of masculinity that has it would kind of move past in certain ways and in other ways we have it in both yeah. good and bad ways too right like on the again on the one hand i don't love that that uh I mean, I don't know. Also, like Marvel movies are kind of for kids, so there's violence. I don't know. It's all the weird, weird puritanical streak in, in America, American culture and entertainment, which is kind of wrapped up in it now. And Bo- Bogart does exude a, a sex appeal. He's, yeah. but it's it's partly because uh, he he makes he makes it known that he has romantic interests, but also that you get the sense he wouldn't really care if they didn't pan out. It's nothing to him. Right. It's a little hard to get. It's, I mean, I think that's also going back to what you were saying about him being the rogue, but still being magnetic. I think it's that combination of the writing always makes him the most interesting person in the room, even as he's surrounded by these, these very, like you said, larger than life characters. Uh, But then also his, and then, and then that element of, he he wants something but he doesn't care about it too much you know again that that's sort of cool it won't it won't phase him and then finally yeah well you said at the start it's just bogart right like part of it is just the chemistry of who can stand in front of a camera and generate presence and that's what he's bringing for me the moment when the the movie becomes a classic uh is is when peter laurie walks into his office Yes. Because that's when you've got two, when Jill Cairo is in there, you've got two, two uh, of, of the two actors with such tremendous presence, with such force going head to head for the first time and, um, and just watching them spar, watching them go in circles around each other, waiting to see how Bogart may come out with the upper hand in that situation. Uh, and um, and, and it's just a pleasure to watch. Uh, sure. It's not often that you get to heavyweights like that. Uh, uh, well, it, is, it starts to become that way, but it, <laughs> it feels it, it, as the genre goes on. But, um, but just seeing it there on screen uh, for the first time in a film like this is, uh, is really a treat. I, I, I haven't seen a lot, but I feel like this is of what I have seen, my favorite Peter Lorre performance. You know, I think he's very oh, good in M, but there's M, just so much more M fun is, here. Oh, he is much he, that. No doubt about that. He's much more. He's much more fun here. But M, M will always. I think, That's fair. I mean, I, I, my, I, it, my, this my is. Go-to. I think you're right that there that I hadn't really thought about it in those terms, but there is the same pleasure here as say watching, um, like out of the past and watching Mitchum and Douglas just tearing yeah. scenes together and you just kind of go these are two guys who know what they're doing and they're just gonna have fun doing it and i'm gonna enjoy watching it yeah it's you you feel like you're being treated to a, a rare matchup and when a film knows how to uh how to use it sparingly even um it even though joe cairo doesn't go away from the the film by any means he kind of retreats into the the background mm-hmm. as it moves on as Sydney Greenstreet moves into the picture and so uh so even though he's around throughout a lot of the rest of the movie uh the this scene kind of stands alone because you're just watching um watching the watching Sam Spade's world open up a little bit as as the 
um, underworld starts to pour in. What do you make of uh, of Spade as a character, uh, of, especially when it comes to personal trauma, his personal life, and and how he kind of rolls with it? That's an interesting question, and thinking to the initial thesis that you put forward to this season that I'm, I'm still on board for that, you know, it's, it's about noirs when it becomes about the internal as well as the external for these characters. He's just kind of chugging along. And then on a certain level, you know, he's already uh, corrupt. It's not the right word, but he's already kind of compromised to a certain degree and he's okay with that. But then I think it all hinges on that final moment with Mary Astor of him kind of talking through the options of whether to let her go or not. And that's uh, to me is what kind of finally puts it over the the top. I mean, there's plenty to enjoy throughout the movie, but that moment is where Spade actually gets to have that internal conflict too, where it, it is, and it's such a fascinating, in one way he's doing the right thing, but in another way he's doing the wrong thing and, or not the wrong, you know, it's, it's, I don't know, it's not as clean. It, again, it's, it's not the clean cut thing that five, 10 years earlier you would have seen with William Powell, where it'd be, you're a bad lady. So you're going to jail and we make a funny quip while you do it. Instead, it's, you know, I, I am very conflicted about this choice that I have to make. And ultimately I'm going to make the pragmatic one because I don't think I could ever trust you because that's the kind of people that we are. By the end, every choice he makes, may, it makes sense. But what um, se- sending sending her away like that makes sense, uh, and and it does so when you realize that well, shit. This I mean, uh, th- this guy has has lost his has lost his partner. He's been he's been through the ringer with with this whole deal, all for a. a, a false statue mm-hmm. um and 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 what really what what is she to him really uh it, it makes it makes sense um and and it's clear that he's uh that that there's more going on in sam spade's head than he necessarily projects out to the rest of the world mm-hmm. uh that that he has a cool front that he doesn't particularly care it's clear that he that sam spade has a a front that he projects to the world but uh he he still very much is having that internal dialogue with himself and Mm -hmm. and he does have he does have somewhat of a moral compass when it comes down to it but i don't know that i would say that it's a moral compass right i mean i think he does like more of a personal code not even a person. My read on it, and I'm not saying that this is 100% right, but just that my my read on it in in his sort of talking through these different aspects of uh, different decisions that he could make is that it it is it is ultimately coming from a pragmatic place, right? It's it's a choice that does satisfy the very white and black. She broke the law and killed somebody, so she should go to jail. But the reason he does it to me ultimately is, you know, I I can't trust you. And that's what, like I, because the, the line there, right, where he's, it's, um, you know, I love you enough to do it, and that's why I shouldn't. To me, is 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 about goes back to um, why he never drinks, right? It's it's the thing that's going to get me in trouble, and not in like a breaking the law trouble, but like a people around you tend to die kind of trouble. 
Um, I, to, to me, it doesn't read ultimately as being about avenging his dead partner or up, upholding the law or ethics or anything about that like that. He's just like, I can't trust you. And and that makes that that makes sense from the very beginning. He hasn't trusted her. He hasn't really yeah. trusted her one one bit throughout all of this. And part of me, part of me wonders when he tells her he loves her, how how much do you take that as uh, as at face value? Because he he the way he says it, you do believe him. You do you do believe that it's um, that it's coming from an honest place. And yet uh, and and yet it doesn't feel. I don't know. Is that part of the the Bogart? Uh, the Bogart persona where he, he can just make any, anyone believe that they're, um, that they're the most important person that he's talking to. I, I think it has more to do with the, cause I agree with you that I believe him, but also think that there's maybe a limit to it, right? That, that there is also an element of Sam Spade is always eye on the prize what's what's the end game you know and so going back to the beginning and and the way that he's shut off from you know he doesn't sort of react to his partner's death on any kind of emotional level he's he's cutting himself off from the the widow that he's been sleeping with you know he he, like you said it's there's a lot going on under the surface but he also is very purposefully tamping it down and again going back to sort of the idea of an idealized form of masculinity circa 1940 that he is there's only so much emotion that he is allowing himself to have and so he can simultaneously love her to whatever degree that sam spade can love somebody but there is a limit to how much sam spade can love somebody until he you know goes to therapy and has some breakthroughs well and and look back to that that initial conversation in the office when miles archer is fawning over her at the desk mm-hmm. and he's letting his emotion all hang out and and sam spade uh plays it cool and look who gets killed well that's it. and that's and that's it too right is that archer is caught up in his emotion and it gets him killed and that is the thing yeah. that is on sam spade's mind is at the end is i'm about to in the same way that the drinks parallel it archer's death parallel parallels it too where he's like if i go with you i'm making the same choice as archer and letting you walk behind me with a gun and i can never trust you in that situation the only safe place for me is if you're behind bars but at the same time again to whatever degree i can love somebody i love you and so this is a very tough choice for me yeah and we get my wonderful shot with the elevator door closing with the the bars right there just to bring it, bring it home. I do think that there's some really nice touches in here. One that flagged for me this time, it's just in terms of the directing and the visual storytelling, the, there's a shot where they reveal uh, the, the gunman watching from out on the street. And it just kind of like follows a, a, the camera follows a character gesture over to the window and then out through the window and down. And you see him down there uh, as off of a piece of dialogue. And there's some there are some nice touches in here too. Right? I don't want to short sell what uh, Houston's doing and in terms of like what he's bringing to the table. It wasn't just the fact that great actors and 
a great story. He is making some some strong choices here. I love that how much he shoots up and how much it it is about really framing these, especially uh, Green Street in this very imposing, filling the frame, dominating the room. Um, it's it's very striking, and and it's really it sets the bar for directors framing Bogart, who's not the tallest actor around, in such mm-hmm. a way that he he stands tallest in any room that that he's in. The proto Tom Cruise, yes, <laughs> I guess <laughs> some similarities, some major differences, <laughs> which is funny because then they uh, at least he has a sense of humor about it, and that the next the next one they just out and out make fun of it. Yeah, <laughs> which which then led me to wonder. George Lucas must have had that in his head, right? When uh, Leia goes, "Aren't you short for a stormtrooper?" I mean, that must have been a. You've got to think that. But is that should we switch over to big I think, sleep? Or I anything think we else? should. I think it's time to get into the um, the glorious big sleep. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I'm looking for a good mystery on something off the beaten track like the Maldives Falcon. Oh, that was a fascinating story. But here's one that has everything the Falcon had and more. It's Raymond Chandler's latest bestseller, The Big Sleep. What a picture that'll make. Mind if I look at it? Sometimes I wonder what strange fate brought me out of the storm to that house that stood alone in the shadows. As I probed into its mysteries, every clue told me a different story. But each had the same ending. Murder. The Big Sleep places Bogart, this time as Philip Marlowe, at the center of a labyrinthian plot that spirals from a presumably simple matter of gambling debts into a parade of unsavory characters and an escalating pile of corpses. Among those on hand for support are John Ridley, Martha Vickers, Dorothy Malone, and, again... Alicia Cook Jr. But the real pairing here is that of Bogart and his wife, Lauren Bacall. Howard Hawks directs. Uh, And this film is one, of course, that capitalizes on the Bogart-Bacall dynamic, which was cemented in To Have and Have Not, uh, which is also directed by Hawks, but of course, even furthered by the fact that by uh, by this point, um, they were a married couple and would Mm -hmm. remain that way until his death in 1957. They did Three movies together, four. I can't remember. There's uh, one or two more after this. They, how many did they? I, I should probably have pulled that up. I think there's at least one more, but um, yeah, I mean, it, it is watching this back to back with Maltese Falcon it really highlights the what Hawks is bringing to the table and how it already is sort of softening what Bogart was doing in the Maltese Falcon, I'd say. Uh, and, and what Hawks is bringing this sort of uh, very light screwball energy to it. You know, obviously we're not going full the thin man here, but, but Hawks is definitely bringing his, his touch to the material. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Also uh, Dark Passage and Key Largo. Am I missing any other one? I think that's it. I think it was four. Because then she she yeah. stopped for a while. Like he asked her to, I think they had kids and she asked her to stop. And then she retired until after he died, I think, and then started working again. Yeah. Hawks, though, he is such a 
a workhorse director. He will jump into any genre and, and he just kind of becomes a chameleon and he's very, very good at working with the biggest stars in Hollywood. Um, he can, he can certainly handle screen presence. Um, he can handle, uh, handle ego, whether we're talking about John Wayne or Marilyn Monroe or Gary Cooper, uh, Cary Grant. Um, but, uh, but, uh, Hawks, uh, for those listening, um, you may know him from Bringing Up Baby or His Girl Friday or Sergeant York to Have It Have Not, Red River, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, Rio Bravo, many, many others. I'm a big His Girl Friday fan. fan. That's oh, I mean, it's also yeah, 100%. My, my, uh, uh, but I love Gentlemen Prefer Blondes also. Which but... we'll return to again at the end of the season when we get to uh, Under the Silver Lake. Uh, Gentlemen Prefer oh. Blondes is a big oh, yeah. plot point in that movie. Uh, it's all yes, it connected. Is. It, it is. It'll As all under, under the Silver Lake would have us believe. Uh, so, um, so yeah, Hawks. The Hawks factor is um, is is big here, but it, Hawks is not the only present. This is a this is a movie that has a lot of key contributors to it, mm-hmm. and uh, and we really before we even get into the Bogart and the Bacall of it all, uh, we should talk about the a- adaptation itself a little bit adapted from a Raymond Chandler novel written in 1939. Um, it was adapted for the screen by three different screenwriters, uh, not an unusual thing in itself, but um, Lee Brackett is uh, is uh, widely renowned as, as being the queen of space opera. She has jumped around between uh, a lot of films um, all the way up through the the seventies, she did write uh, Robert Altman's long goodbye, which we'll be getting to. And uh, she, at the end, at the end of her career, she, uh, she wrote the initial draft of empire strikes back. And then we've got Jules Furthman who, um, who wrote nightmare alley, which we already have, have reviewed and Shanghai express. And then, uh, and then the great novelist, William Faulkner, all uh, during his Hollywood years, all combining forces, to adapt a, a novel that required some pretty heavy uh, um, points uh, of amendment to fit within the Hayes Code, mm-hmm. uh, kind of brushing over some of the nudity, homosexuality, and, uh, and pornography of the uh, original text. You can, kind of, you can follow enough to get what's going on. There's definitely some shorthanding that's would probably read better for a contemporary audience than it does now, just in terms of assumed knowledge and ability to kind of read between the lines, um, you know, like cellular closet element of, of what's going on and, and the pornography as well. Um, I think the modern audience definitely benefits from either some light Wikipedia reading or being familiar with the novel and being able to kind of put together more of what's happening. Well, and I, I think that kind of thing uh, um, is by by this point, by ten years into the the Hayes Code, something that directors are 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 getting pretty comfortable with finding shorthand for and, for sure. and working around. Uh, I think- and, and I don't think it. I don't think the movie suffers for for obscuring those kind of references. No, because I think also it is so much more. Uh, it's a movie that's a vibe, not a story for me at this point. You know, to me, the spinning in circles is a feature, not a bug of of the narrative. And because it is just about watching, hanging out with, with Bogart. I mean, that to me is the movie. Is just 
more so than Maltese Falcon. Like Maltese Falcon is there's a mystery to unravel and this, that, and the other thing. And how is he, how is he going to get out ahead of all these different people scheming against him? And this is just like, man, it's really cool watching Bogart just go around to LA and do his thing. Yeah. And, um, and I think with good reason uh, for modern audiences, perhaps the, uh, the key touchstone, which we will also be revisiting later for the big sleep is the big Lebowski, uh, <laughs> which yeah. uh, you can, um, besides having a uh, uh, a well um, our our hero bouncing around Los Angeles um, you have uh, a an opening scene here so overt as uh, as a uh, man in a wheelchair and uh, well I guess in this case you're substituting his uh, um, his daughter for uh, for his wife and big Lebowski mm-hmm. um, sending sending our our main character off onto uh what will become a very convoluted quest yeah so philip seymour hoffman is the butler is the butler yeah translation right yeah yes he yeah. would be yeah when we get to the the big Lebowski later this season we'll, we'll have to just kind of go through and see if we can figure out the one-to-ones uh you know who, who are the nihilists in this uh, the, case, then? the the coens are clearly in love with this movie um you also For get uh you get um the a William Faulkner reference from Barton Fink uh, in the in the writer having having relocated to Hollywood kind mm-hmm. of um, picked up on in, in Faulkner's contribution here. Uh, so th- certainly this is a wildly influential movie, and uh, and you're right, it's uh, the 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 plot is um, famously pretty um, difficult to uh, to follow all the finer points of, but it isn't about that um it's it's really about spending time with bogart as he moves from um from one scene to the next uh and uh and 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 even chandler himself didn't really know who killed the the poor butler shelf well i think it's sort of a series of compound right so the book this was this was his first novel right and so this was taking a few of his short stories that he'd published some of which were not, there weren't always under the Philip Marlowe name. And then later they all kind of became Philip Marlowe stories when that became his breakthrough character. So that kind of got expanded into this novel. So the novel is, and the story itself, right. Is actually these two interlocking cases, which also compounds the confusion because you get to the halfway point and one of them gets resolved, but now he's spun off into this other thing with this missing case that's being talked about all along, but all of a sudden it's the focus. And then on top of that, not only was it the multiple writers, but also there were like 20 minutes worth of reshoots um, before it got released and scenes got cut and replaced with other scenes, uh, including a very specific key scene in the middle at the end when the first case is solved, where he sits down with the, uh, there's a whole like set of characters that got removed that that's the DA and he like talks them through the first case and explains like this happened and this happened and this happened and these guys are dead and it's all connected. And then he segues into the second part of the the story and that all got removed for the, the release. A big part of it was apparently just giving us some more Bogart and Bacall time. Like the, the horse race dialogue was all part of the reshoot that they very specifically were like, we need to give her being to give them that scene to pay off of uh to have and have not 
and make sure that we're selling to the audience something that we can deliver. The the movie is um is very invested in in playing up that that star pairing. It bookends the the film with them in silhouette smoking cigarettes together and it wraps up with the cigarettes smoldering on an ashtray. Uh, it's it, it's very it very much wants um wants the audience to come for that that screen chemistry between the two of them. Uh, and it delivers. I mean, that, I, 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 I am glad that they added that, that horse race scene. And I think it was worth cutting some of the comprehensive comp- comprehensibility of the narrative to be able to just have the two of them flirt outrageously via metaphor. Uh, and that's, that's certainly one of the pleasures of, uh, of, classic noir is watching those uh those innuendo laden scenes mm-hmm. just kind of stack on top of each other till they reach a point where they can't go any further i i think that uh it the bogart bacall chemistry for me doesn't work quite as well and i think it's it's i think i mostly lay it on um she has never been for me quite the the presence that I think the films want to believe she is hmm. so I've never been a huge um a, I, I I don't I should be clear I don't dislike Lauren Bacall by any means but um but I think that um that I'm not as I'm not as sold on her presence as the film would have her framed as I mean I think it gets um, back to just that ineffable quality of star power and some of that just isn't you know is in the eye of the beholder and it becomes does it does it land for you as well as it does for everybody else and i would agree i i I wouldn't go so far as to say i don't buy her in the way the movie wants me to buy her as having star power but i think (laughs) i mean i think honestly the movie that i was reminded of watching the big sleep this time or just the character I was reminded of was James Bond because every woman in LA wants to give Humphrey Bogart the business. Yeah. Like absolutely. he just walks into a room and they're like, Oh, hello. Well, well, and, and that's one reason I, and I, I am a big fan of Dorothy Malone. Um, and, and this, this is uh, th- that scene where he walks into the bookshop and, and like sparks fly right away. And, and she's in it for one scene, but mm-hmm. You feel the 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 sexual tension. You feel what it's building to. Um, you don't particularly expect to see her again afterward. Uh, and and I think I'm also colored because uh, uh, because there's another film um, written on the wind, which um, she and Lauren Bacall are both also in together. And she is, and she's a supporting role in it, uh, but probably up there on my favorite supporting performances uh, of of all time. Uh, and you know, again, no, no disrespect to Lauren Bacall, but uh, I, I think that looking at that scene with Malone, um, you know, set, setting up Bogart as as a player, as as a man who can have anything he wants. Right. I mean, that's what happens. I mean, yeah, it's. Um, but even you know, Martha Vickers' first entrance and just doing her whole yes. like. Weird. she's so wonderfully weird and yes yeah. i mean it's perfect her, for the role like it is it is what the the performance calls for but you're just like what is going on the 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 sheer strangeness of of her 
of the choices she makes in the in the scene where he walks in to the the house and finds mm-hmm. her finds her chattering away and, and and just kind of in shock in a stupor um it it's fascinating i it's weird and i i'm there for it um i thought i thought she was very good yeah but also even the you know there's that brief scene even shorter scene with the ta- the female taxi driver which cuz this was uh, originally filmed during world war 2 so there was more of a you know women taking men's jobs while men are away but then it got released in 46 so it um it kind of like uh, kind of i mean right now it plays fine but so anyway just that scene where the 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 female taxi driver is also just like i work during the day better to call me at night or i'm butchering the line but (laughs) i mean literally it is james bond level every female character that he, he comes across is just like so what are you doing later yeah, I I love that you brought that that comparison up. It's it's very true, um, and 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 more so than Sam Spade. I guess we'll get yeah. into their their comparison soon enough. But but Marlo is uh, Marlo's just set up as um, as the the man's man. Um, there's um, he can have any woman he wants, and there's a a real danger about Marlo uh, that. Um, that isn't quite the same as as Spade. Spade is uh, um, Spade. Spade is an opportunist, and he's out for himself. But what that scene when Marlo is is in the apartment with Joe Brody, and Brody's got the gun held to him, but he's the one quivering. He's the one, and Bogart just stands there, and he and he's inviting it, and he is not bothered in the slightest by this and and there's no doubt about who has the upper hand in that situation for sure i mean it goes back to i think spade is more of a tactician and a strategist you know he's he's always thinking and playing it and he's not above throwing some punches you know as we talked about he clearly enjoyed beating up uh joe cairo but Marlo carries a gun and Spade doesn't, right? Spade makes a big point of like, I don't keep a gun around. They're too much hassle. And Marlo's like, I've got a pull-out compartment in my car that has two guns <laughs> for when I really got to throw some heat. I'm ready. Um, so, you know, so yeah, there's definitely much more of an, like to me, violence is a tool that Spade is willing to use. But for Marlo, it is the way that he addresses a problem. He's yes. just like, I'll just keep going around until somebody starts something and then I'm gonna destroy them. And and that's not and that's not to say that he goes in uh he 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 doesn't go in guns blazing to everything. He's he's no. he's tactically inclined, he's smart, he's savvy. Uh he uh, uh he he hangs back and lets poor Alicia Cook Jr. Um mm. just uh just kind of bite it, even though he swore up and down later that he liked the guy, but he didn't really <laughs> didn't really see fit to insert himself i mean i kind of buy that he didn't realize it was poisoned you know uh, (laughs) sure but yeah it's but but at the same time you know this movie ends with a shootout and and uh and he just sends him off to uh, to to his death and it's um it's it's pretty brutal (laughs) yeah but it's also it to me again it comes back to just being like that this movie is more of the power fantasy side of masculinity right so i think spade is 
more of a the idealized form, but that Marlowe is the fun, I want to be that guy form. You know, Spade is like, he he does sleep with multiple women in that, that movie, for instance, but it's kind of off screen, it's kind of a pain, and he's like, oh, God, I got to deal with this. Spade, uh, Marlowe's just like, pretty lady i guess i'm gonna sleep with her too yeah i can't um i i i can't believe how good of a a comparison that is bringing it to to james bond you're totally right and when we jump in uh on future viewings um i i'm um interested to revisit marlowe through through that lens too and see how how other actors are gonna how much of it is the source material how much of it is it i'm pretty sure a lot of it is going to come down to like Hawks's light touch. I think that's where the Hawks of it comes through is the, you know, there is a little bit more of that banter to it, that, that screwball comedy energy, but filtered through this more down and dirty noir vibe. And I think that's what sort of keeps it feeling a little bit lighter and a little bit more fun than the Maltese Falcon. And, and there's room for that in noir. It's like, it's not, yeah. uh, it's not like, uh, it's not like we've shed that all together. And this is a really good example of how you can still have, have it both ways a little bit. And you're not going full William Powell, uh, but you're, um, you're, you're still able to keep that in there. And it's compatible with Bogart and his hardened persona. It still works. Sure. Also watching it this time uh, brought home for me the, and I think this kind of tickled the back of my head when I watched it. And to what you're saying about the Coen brothers that, this is the inciting incident here is also the same inciting incident of Hail Caesar, where Eddie Mannix goes to the pornographer's house where they're trying to blackmail Scarlett Johansson and he has to get her out of the trouble that she's in. But instead yep. of a dead man and a detective case unfolding, it becomes about, you know, the silliness of, of Hollywood but it is, I mean, even the house feels very similar to the house here. So again, I think that points to this being a real Rosetta Stone for the, the Coens. It, it is. It's, it's more than any other movie I can think of. This is this is what so much of uh, the Cohen sensibility is around. I mean, definitely a lot of it is here. I do think that when we get to some of the more nihilistic and or absurd in a, in a philosophical sense, noirs like Detour or Double, uh, not, not Double Demony, um, Postman Always Ranks Twice, you know, the ones where it's just people getting it over their heads because of ambition. I think that's, that's the other key true. strand, right? I think that yeah. this definitely yeah. is part of it, but that's the other part of just like, oh, yeah, human Postman, nature is Postman just Always Ranks up. Twice is, um, that, that's, that's definitely I mean, like straight. I mean, the, man, the man who wasn't there so i guess the other angle to marlowe here depictions of both spade and marlowe but especially especially marlowe in this one is just that that working class mm-hmm. uh route that he has and uh and you know we've talked about this before cops at their core they're kind of extensions of the government but but the the detective here he's the lone soldier of the lower classes um and and Bogart is their champion. Um, he mentions pay frequently, shamelessly. He talks about how the job doesn't pay well, um, but it's also it's also a job that uh, he seems to take tremendous pride in. And it does, mm-hmm. it's hard to imagine Marlowe doing anything else but exactly this. So I, I actually watched the original forty five cut that this time around that, but that 
didn't get released until like the nineties uh, when it got found and, and restored. So I'm pretty sure I've got a beat on which scenes are in which version, but there's gonna be a little fuzziness. So I, I might be, but so the original cut delves more into how he used to work for the DA's office and got fired, which isn't, I think in both versions that they set up that that's how he gets the job. So he gets referred to it, but um, it, it does play more into he is too much of a, a lone wolf classic American rugged individualist to work within the system. And that was why he had to leave and go out on his own as a private detective. So I think it does play into that, but even, you know, something that struck me too about the Maltese Falcon too, is that the, the cops there are friendly to a degree with Spade, but A, they're willing to, you know, throw him under the bus if it's going to close the case and B, straight up punches him in the throat at one point. Yep. So Spade too is not, you know, necessarily a friend. And they all just sort of go, yeah, sometimes a cop just got to blow off some steam, man. Like you were kind of asking for it and we're all just going to walk away from this because you don't want to get shot. Yeah, they're... The, the cops are an inevitability of his profession. Like mm-hmm. they're, they're going to show up. He's mm-hmm. going to have to have some kind of relationship with them. There's uh, that they're, uh, they're not entirely monolithic. Um, you know, he's able to yeah. have more sympathetic uh, associates within, but, uh, but at the same time, they're still all just one giant arm of the government and, mm-hmm. uh, and therefore can't, think is quick can't move as quick uh and and that's why you need someone like philip marlowe right totally and, and i think also your point too about the the money but all both of these hinge on that mercenary aspect but i think you're right that spades take on the money is more is more pragmatic is just i will take this job even though you're lying to me because the money's good and I think you're right that Marlowe is more proud of the fact that he is, you know, that this is the level, like this is the, that he, what class he belongs to and the kind of person that he is, that he's not moneyed. And it's, it's not the pragmatic when he's talking about money, it's not in a pragmatic, like this is going to cost as much for me to put up with it. It's more just like, I want to rub it in your face that I'm doing this for money, you know, because I, I enjoy forcing this rich person to confront the fact that they have to rely on me, this money grubber to, to do their stuff. Yeah. You can imagine Sam Spade, if he collected $10,000 for, for the Falcon going or, or a quarter million, uh, you know, going off and living life on a beach somewhere and, and stepping away from it all. You can't be really imagine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You can't imagine Marlowe, pulling himself out of this uh, no yeah no i mean i think also at the end marlo or at the end spade doesn't have anything right i mean he doesn't have the falcon he doesn't have the girl his partner's dead Uh, i mean his life's kind of i mean he got a pretty good he's got the office to himself he was pretty quick to have archer's name removed from the (laughs) from the class and he didn't even actually doesn't even have that much because he turns the hundred bucks over as evidence that he was trying to get that they're trying to bribe him to get out of the country so he really doesn't have that much at the end of it. But to me, Marlowe feels way more like the constant underdog, you know, the, the scrappy upstart, even though at the end of this, he gets paid well and he gets uh, 
Lauren Bacall. So, you know, he yeah. materially he is ahead. He comes out ahead of, of Spade, but just the the Marlowe persona again defines so much of the the genre of just the like hangdog. I'm gonna do it, and at the end of the day, I'm gonna do what's right. I mean, that's the other thing too, is that here at a certain point he starts doing the case because it's the right thing to do, not because he's getting paid. Like nobody's paying him to find uh Regan. No, no, it's he's he's um he's just hardwired to right. to fold that into his mission. Right. Like his case that he gets hired for is done halfway through, but so he's he just compelled to do it. And so for that reason, you just get the feeling, like you said, that he just can't stop. Like this is just who he is. Talked a bit about Spade versus Marlowe, but of course the unifying factor is Bogart himself. Yeah. And it begs the question, what would happen to either of these films if it were anyone else? Um, would would they work the same way? Uh, no. And we'll, we'll be getting some very clear demonstrations of this. I mean, um, we'll be looking at a lot of different Marlowe's and I'll, uh, I will probably try and watch the 1930 Maltese Falcon at some point, um, before the end of the season. Cause we'll, we'll try and, we're gonna try and do like a little recap of stuff that we didn't have time for, but we can sort of talk briefly, briefly about. So I'm hoping I can get to it for that. But, um, but yeah, no, I, I, you you said it right at the top. You know, Bogart brings such a core element of cool and unflappability in the face of danger and betrayal and murder. And the entire time, he's just got you know a good line and a good fist ready for whatever he's he's up against. There's no shortage of noirs that that have a. Uh... I mean, by by Bogart standards, most leading men are bland, but but there's certainly plenty um, plenty of noirs that have an anchor that does um, that does disappear a little bit more. Is more of the the cellophane man is uh, mm-hmm. is uh, is a, a Joseph Cotton or a Glenn Ford or someone who's uh, who's perfectly fine, but isn't who you come away remembering but then again if you're watching gilda you're remembering rita hayworth if you're watching sure. the third man you're remembering orson wells you you're coming away with other with other characters on your mind instead i think so i i, I, I totally agree but i think it's a doubling effect that or a compounding effect that it's not just the star power that bogart brings but it's the perfect way that his particular brand of charisma and screen presence aligns with the archetype of the detective that they were establishing that allows it to sort of singularly be an inflection point in cinema i mean we'll, we'll be seeing that is well said yeah i mean we'll be seeing robert mitchum do marlowe at some point in this in this uh, series and I'm very curious to see it. And I love Robert Mitchum. Like he and, and Mitchum's Mitchum's got star power. He's got, he's got presence, presence 100%, um, he, but it, it's a different wattage than, um, than what Bogart brings. Yes. Uh, but, um, but, you know, Mitchum's a, a great example of, you know, put him in, in a lead role and he's, he's magnetic too. So, yeah, I, I, I think it's, I think it is just bogey, bogey all the way, baby. He, he's got such presence here. You feel when you're watching a noir, you feel like 
like Bogart has a place within within whatever you're saying. You could you you would you, you think of him when you think of the genre, mm-hmm. um, but uh, there's certainly uh, plenty of classic noirs that manage to distinguish themselves very well without having him on hand. Not all of them involve private detectives. Not all of them rely on a on singular star power. So we're gonna um, we're gonna be able to look at plenty of examples of how um, I, I, which I think uh, for me are, are, are even more examples of the paradigm of the genre, even though I think we just watched two of the most influential movies of the genre. I think that's one of the lovely things about this podcast as a whole is being able to go past that first layer of, okay, the first thing you think of is the private, the private detective and the femme fatale and the, and being able to say, but it actually encompasses so much more of that, that still gets at this, very specific question of like the human soul these are both maltese falcon or the big sleep are iconic movies that there's no doubt about it um for me um i like the i I like the maltese falcon a little bit more than the big sleep but um it's hard to deny the influence that they both have i don't know that i would quite put either of them on on masterpiece level but they're both very good that's me personal but that's where i can look at I, i like to look at something and and say like these are these are movies that I very much enjoyed revisiting that that pack a ton of punch that have everything you know you want out of the genre, but it's not the genre to me at its absolute absolute height. Well, that's fair. Personally, disagree, but completely understand where you're coming from on both those points, which makes for such interesting podcast listening. To be like, oh, these two guys very nicely agree with each other, agree with each other, and. There's no conflict here, but um, we mostly agree. But, mostly, uh, yeah. Well, it's because we both have great taste. Uh, <laughs> so I, I, I think they're both very good. Yeah, they're both very good. I think you're right. The Maltese Falcon, on a, a very concrete level, is a better put together movie and story. But the vi- again, just the vibe of the Big Sleep is so appealing to me, and, and probably it does come down to just the the power fantasy an appeal of being slash hanging around with Bogart in, in this very relaxed mode is, you know, just, I would like, I could just toss this movie on anytime and just be like, all right, I'm just going to hang out in this space for a while. But I, I, I totally can't fault you for saying that the Maltese Falcons is the better for you and, or that they're not, you know, complete, five-star masterpieces of the genre. I can also see how each has, you know, they're each still in the early stages of, of the genre. And so there's places still to go, but I, I just have so much affection for both these movies that, I, you know, I don't know. I just, I, I just love movies. They're, I, I would certainly say I've got affection for them in spades. Huh? Uh, but they, um, uh, they they both are are so pivotal in in what we're talking about here and in um, in just shaping young movie lovers I think and introducing them to uh, a world of of classic films uh, that that they may not have considered. There's certainly two that I would recommend most readily to anyone that is ready to jump into film noir. Mm-hmm. They're just very accessible and. Great, great entry points. Uh, and well, anything else you'd like to add on on the topic of Bogart? Well, I mean, we, we could talk about it for another couple of hours, but we should probably wrap it up. Yeah, uh, I, I, I knew this would be uh, a fruitful discussion. Um, well, we're gonna we're gonna move on because we've got uh, a, a 
plenty to catch up on for our our coming episode. But first, it's time for What's in the Box. In honor of Kiss Me Deadly, what's something you've watched recently that's so good it deserves to be glowing in that suitcase? I actually just recently caught up on the Neo Genesis Evangelion rebuilds. This is going to be very nerdy. Uh, so I'm just going to do this Bring it on. for a couple minutes. But I, I finally, now they're all on Prime, the last part four got released, Shin, uh, the Shin edition. I finally caught up on them. And I will admit the first three, I, I love the originals. They were deeply formative part of my high school anime years but um the watching the first three parts of the rebuild uh, slash remakes i wasn't entirely sold on why they needed to exist or it's they seemed a little like maybe they got a little run away with the amount of money and technology and and resources on hand and it i mean the power spiral and the craziness of the robots and all that was was pretty wild but then the fourth one came along and a it finally slowed down i think a big thing was the first three are moving very quickly through a lot of story from the original series but the fourth one they finally kind of slowed down and went here's that balance between small scale high school drama and character moments and then ridiculous robot battles that are literally apocalyptic Nice. So that was great. But also the interesting thing to me about the fourth one is that it's when it really plays the creator's cards. And it reminded me a lot of Matrix Resurrections and Twin Peaks The Return in that all three, I guess this is kind of a spoiler, mostly for Twin Peaks The Return. Uh, so skip ahead 30 seconds for a minute <laughs> if you haven't watched it yet. But all three sort of uh, by the end bring the main characters into the maybe not the resurrection as much but they bring their it's it's auteurs returning to their signature creation and very demonstrably and knowingly denying the audience what they think they would want from that revisit remake whatever and then at the end setting their characters free from the confines of the narrative that they had been trapped in at the end of the previous versions, right? So whether it's Neo and Trinity, like setting themselves free of, of uh, the analyst and, and sort of rejecting the need for reboots, or it's um, Cooper uh, driving out of Twin Peaks and into the real world and literally arriving at the actual house where they filmed Twin Peaks and the woman who actually lives there now and realizing that he is now in our world and uh, uh, and what's her name just screams that incredible iconic scream at the end or here where literally the animation starts to break down once Shinji has kind of let himself go and forgiven himself and they then break through the animation into a world without Eva's, which is our world and the movies end with the characters like r- the animation merging into an actual shot of like film of Japan and the characters r- running out of the animation into the real world. Wow. And to me, all three of these are sort of revolving around this idea of like the past is behind you. 
you it is dead you need to learn to like let it go and move on and into the future and also stop trying to make me come back and do this i want to do other stuff as an auteur yeah wow uh i i've uh, i have not i'm not up on my anime at all i i should clarify so uh but that sounds fascinating i mean it's i don't, I don't know if i can recommend it unless you enjoy the originals because it, it gets wacky i mean it 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 takes some big swings but um but the fourth one for me ultimately made it all worth it and was a really fascinating experience so that was something i watched recently that really landed well for me what about you uh well i uh i like um like uh like i think we all do around this time of year i've started to feel a little bit of fatigue from watching uh 2021 releases and uh, the first thing I reached for as an antidote from that, uh, it was uh, aside from the, the classic noir that we've been making our way through, uh, was a, uh, a martial arts classic I had n- somehow not made my way to. I got to watch Jackie Chan in Police Story. Uh, which, oh, um, I need to watch that, man. Um, which was such a refreshing break from everything I've been watching lately. That's a good pick. Uh, that um, it is so impressive to to just watch actual. It's all, of course, it's all about the stunts. It's about the stunts, like a Busby Berkeley musical is about the the musical numbers, um, and everything else is a, a point to get between them. And and Jackie Chan is just so game. And he is um, he is as as skilled of a physical actor as there has ever been since since Buster Keaton, um, and and he throws himself so totally into that performance, and the set pieces don't disappoint. Um, is it a it is if you look at it as uh, as a movie? Is it is it perfect? Certainly not, but wow, it's worth it just to watch everything that's unfolding in front of you. Um, and also credit to Bridget Lynn, who is fantastic in it uh, and and is able to uh, to kind of nicely play off him in a number of action sequences. And uh, and always good to have Maggie Chung around as well. That's a that's a great pick. Have you, uh, are you are you planning on reading the Buster Keaton biography that just came out, Cameraman? I, I, I did not know that there was one that just came out but it's I getting very good reviews um i'm online for it at the library and looking forward to giving it a read nice keaton is um keaton is so great um just one of those one of those stars that there is there there could never be another one of yeah but i but also agree there's uh shaggy chan certainly is a, a worthy heir to that style of purely visual physical mayhem I, and I miss I miss having fight scenes like like that in movies. It, it's so they can be so incomprehensible to watch. But these, it's about um, even putting aside the the probably questionable physical safety of, that many actors would have going into situations like that. Uh, to to watch to watch someone like Jackie Chan or um, Michelle Yeoh go at it in, uh, uh, in, in a, a fight scene is like nothing else that, that you watch in Hollywood right now. Um, so, you know, uh, some, sometimes when I'm craving a break from recent awards contenders, I, I will get onto a genre binge uh, and, and martial arts may be the one of the moment. 
No, that's a really good. I, I'm I'm definitely feeling sort of a similar burnout. I was I've been watching just a lot of first I got burned out on 2021 films and then I got burned out on all the really good movies that I just never got around to watching because they're too depressing. It was like, oh yeah, you know what? They were really depressing to watch them all in a row like that. Yeah. Uh, and I've been and usually I would then go to noir, but we're watching it for this. So I'm just constantly like, well, I shouldn't watch that because we'll probably watch it in the near future or like, you know. Uh so I, I this is a great suggestion and I probably am gonna watch police story one and two this weekend and you should enjoy I, the hell I think, out of it. I think they're both on I watched them on something HBO maybe yeah, I think they're both on HBO remember. and Criterion so yeah. uh, plenty of ways to watch do that uh, yeah sometimes it's martial arts or wuxia sometimes it's jalo for me sometimes it's Bollywood uh, sometimes you just need to break away and, and dive into another genre for a while to detox totally no I've been feeling the same thing so uh, thank you for the suggestion I'm probably also going to finally watch uh, Lady Snowblood Oh, I love Lady Snowblood. That's that's good stuff. Yeah, yeah. I think I think you're right. It's just something something in the air. It's time for some martial arts mayhem. If you can find um, come drink with me anywhere, I that's that's probably my my very very favorite. I mean, I, I, this is definitely a, a big um, in general or uh, or Peking Opera Blues, which is more comic mayhem. But uh, but I, I think Peking Opera Blues is virtually impossible to find. Yeah, definitely the, just in general, all of the East Asian martial arts movies of the 60s and 70s and 80s even, it's just a big blind spot for me. So, uh, so much fun in that, in that realm. I, I, I would not say I'm well-versed, but I, I've gotten enough, I've seen enough to definitely have some favorites emerge. I'll probably also be uh, heading off in the direction and following in your footsteps. Uh, cool, but this is a very well, <laughs> very uh, far field from lengthy <laughs> lengthy uh we're also conversations yeah. about humphrey bogart and come drink with me probably most cinephile podcasts run by a couple of nerdy dudes who have anything else to do besides watch movies that's the truth <laughs> well i suppose we should bring it to a close tonight um so in in conclusion Thanks, as always, for joining us on this excavation of the darkest, grittiest of genres. You can find us online at celluloiddirt.com and on Letterboxd under the handle Celluloid Dirt. We'll see you next time when we see what happens when we take Bogey out of the equation. We'll be looking at a whole mess of Marlowe's from the Falcon Takes Over to the Brasher Doubloon as we chart the course of Chandler adaptations across the 1940s. Give yourself a real tongue, tongue twister there. <laughs> sure did. Uh, until then, may our viewings be riddled with scandal and desperation. Good night. Celluloid Dirt is a strange phantom production. Written and produced by Tristan Johnson and Fred Pelzer. Music by Kevin McLeod. His work can be found at incompetech.com. If you like the podcast, tell a friend. <laughs>